0: Good to see you all here this morning, and those of you online, good to have you with us. And so, hey, today we're beginning a series of messages out of three chapters in the Bible, just three chapters. And we're going to take a little tour through a very famous passage of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you have heard of the Sermon on the Mount? Okay. And you'll find it in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So you can be turning there. Uh, these three chapters give us some of the most profound teaching. I'm living a spiritual life in the world, in history. It, you're not going to find anything like it. And uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 1, Matthew records Jesus delivering this teaching from a mountain. That's why it's called Sermon on or Sermon from the Mount. And I don't believe that's by coincidence. There's, there's a symbolic meaning to this that we have to realize. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. And, and to kind of tell you this I want to bring you back for more on that but the point is that it's from a mountain, it's a high it's high and lofty teaching and when you read some of the passages you're going to go man that's just above me, I mean it really is you have that feeling and there's nothing else out there that compares to some of the lessons we're going to be learning in this section of scripture and you have to understand appreciate the disciples because it's not until later that they learn that the only way you can even come close to climbing this mountain is by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in your life. These guys, they didn't know about the gospel yet. Jesus had not died. He had not risen from the dead. Okay, the Holy Spirit hadn't been given. These guys are hearing this message through ears of, you expect us to do this? And so there's this, you have to understand, when they probably heard this, they were going, you know, I don't think so. Even today, what we know about the Holy Spirit and God of the gospel, we could look at this and go, I don't think so. This, This is a sermon from the mountain. And today I want us to get our binoculars out and focus on the very summit of this mountain. And it's a renowned vista. It's well known. It's called the Beatitudes. And when you read the Beatitudes, you're looking at the very top of the summit of this mountain of what Jesus is teaching us, and you'll find them in the Beatitudes in verses three through twelve. I was going to try to cover three of them today, and I ended up just doing the first one. So that shows you it, we're going to have a hard time with this, guys. I don't know. And so, how many of you have enjoyed some of the many views of Mount Hood we get in the valley here? All of you, isn't it great? On, on certain days, you're just like man, it's just beautiful to look at that mountain from our house in the upstairs window on a clear day, you can see Mount Hood, Mount St. Helens, and Mount Adams. It's pretty, it's cool sometimes. But Mount Hood has a special significance for me because I've climbed that mountain. In my early days, I made the climb. I, and so when I see Mount Hood, I look up there, and I go, I've been on top of that man, you know, But I've climbed that one, And uh, it's kind of cool, just to think, it it's kind of blows your mind, man, I've been on top of that thing. But the mountain we're looking at today is way higher. I mean, it's it's it puts Everest it makes Everest look like a little molehill, and I, I've I've hiked around the slopes of this mountain. I've kind of dabbled with some of the higher trails, but whenever I look up on this mountain, it just humbles me. It's awe-inspiring. It's but it's just way above, and it, it's just it, it humbles you because it's so high, especially when you get a sense you get the feel or you hear the calling that God wants you to climb this mountain these teachings are not just suggestions he's saying this is how I want you to be and we all go yeah, I, right but that's what this is about and, uh, and 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 we go God can't I just hang out at base camp <laughs> really now last week I, and we've shared this before remember the trail to the valley I shared last week we start at the trailhead and you know, we show up and then we get on the friend's trail we come to church it, it's kind of a social thing we make friends and then we get to base camp and base camp, you're high up it's a high elevation and you start learning about God And you can almost feel like you're a Christian at the base camp but you're not you're just hanging with other Christians you're just kind of, you know going to church and you know going to church doesn't make you any Christian like they say any more than being in a garage makes you a car they, they say that and so that's true and so we hang out at base camp and uh, but then there's this section of trail what we're calling the pilgrim's path and that's where decisions are made and and uh, the beatitudes are on the pilgrim's path this is not something you just do naturally this is something that happens when you decide to follow Jesus and it gets exciting at this point and as you travel this part of the, of the Trail of Pilgrim's Path, you get glimpses of the summit and you have some major experiences with God at this point. And this is where your relationship with God gets real. You're not playing anymore. It becomes a serious, serious thing. And, and understand we, we be, you know we become Christians when we first when you accept Christ and are baptized, that's the beginning of the Pilgrim's Path. Accepting Christ, being baptized, that's just when you. That's just a bridge crossing at the beginning of the trail. How many of you have been on trails where they have this little bridge that crosses a stream? You know, it's typical. You cross the bridge. Man, that was a great hike. No, it's, that's just the beginning. And so you've got this whole thing ahead of us, and that's what God's calling us to. I, this passage, I have some history with this passage. And I remember the first time I experienced these verses 45, 46 years ago. When I was in high school. I was about 17 years old. And I was still a new Christian. And I was on an activity bus. We were on our way to an away game or something like that. And I bought myself one of these little pocket. Bibles. I was an intense Christian. And I had my little pocket Bible. And I was sitting on the activity bus. And I pulled it out. And I opened it up. And I read these verses. For some reason. Matthew chapter 5. And this is what I read. who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now i got to tell you, when I read those words, I had an experience. It was an experience. I I can't say I understood them fully intellectually. All I know is I had an experience with God. And I kind of got a glimpse of the mountain, and and I was hearing God say, you know, climb. This is the path. Walk it. And I got the sense that I was just this little existence sitting on a school bus relating to the God of the universe. And I felt completely humbled, yet extremely significant at the same time. Because the God of the universe was addressing me and saying, I want to have a relationship with you. And if you want more of this, this is the path you need to follow. And so it became, it was a deal. And it's, it's driven me to this day. It's where my God experience began. And my desire to see God really started. It's where I, I think I really seriously began walking on the pilgrim's path. And again, I was already saved. I was baptized. I was going to heaven. I, I mean, I understood the basics. But this is where I realized the Christian life is more about getting saved and going to heaven. This is about having a relationship with God in this life, in this reality and growing to become what he wants me to be, to become a son of God. And this is the path. And uh, I wish I could say that I immediately embraced all the principles taught in these few verses. You know, and that everything was peachy keen after that. And I lived a victorious Christian life. No, it doesn't work that way. There was too much I was unaware of and I didn't understand about my own sinfulness, my own life. And basically, God had to teach me this. He says, son, I'm glad you want to seek me now. This is good. I put that desire in your heart. But there's this this thing you need to understand. You can't get there from where you're at. He's basically saying, you can't get there from here. And so I'm going, okay, God, so where do I need to get to to get there? Okay. And, And so, you know, he's, follow me. And that's why the first thing God had to teach me was the very first step. The Beatitudes, which we find in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of God. I had to learn the hard way what this meant. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And we're going to talk about what it means to be blessed. Some other messages in the kingdom of God, and some other messages. And the, but today I just want us to focus on what it means to be poor in spirit. And being poor in spirit, intellectually, just simply means we come to full realization acceptance of our own spiritual poverty and powerlessness. Our own enmity with God. The fact that whatever God asks of us, we can't do apart from Him. And you, you kind of have to reach that part. And it's a hard thing to accept. And, uh, and blessedness can only come when we first realize we don't have the resources This is about realizing our lack of resources apart from God. We just don't have anything. Apart from God, we have nothing. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough energy. But more than that, we don't even have enough life. Everything's running down. Sometimes this is called the law of entropy. Sometimes it's called the second law of thermodynamics. There's even a scientific basis for this. Scientists have realized that a system without outside intervention runs down. It declines. Energy dissipates. Order tends to disorder. And we all know that by experience. This is why we have to charge up our phones and our laptops. This is why there are some things I can't do now at age 62 that I used to be able to do when I was 20. Yes, some of you are going, yeah, you didn't have to mention that. We are, everything's running down around us, and it takes a whole lot of work to keep things going. And it becomes really hard. And eventually we fail. Eventually we die. Death—it's the curse of death—and we live under it. Apart from God, we do not have the resources to survive, let alone grow and thrive. And uh, being poor in spirit means we face this. We admit it. It's very countercultural. We live in a culture that says, "Think positive. You can do it. You know, if you just believe, you can—you can become whatever you want." And see, God said, "No, it doesn't work that way." And you know, I've said this before. Before we can think positive, we need to think negative. Now, once you think negative and accept God in your life, you can be as positive as you can be. In fact, the battle becomes: we got to think positive, and we still think negative. But we can't think positive until we first accept the fact that without part of God, I can't be positive. I am broken. I am empty. I am nothing until I connect with the source of my being, which is the God who's there through Jesus Christ. Yes. And the poor in spirit thing is you've got to admit the need. And the world out there does not want to admit that. And even as Christians, we fight it. We still want to do things on our own. And it took me a long time. By the way, the Beatitudes are progressive. This is very important. You can't do one without doing the one before. So before you can move on to the morning and the and the meekness and the righteousness and the mercy and the pure in heart you got to do number one you can't jump around, you can't go ahead you got to, and this is the first day you can't bypass, no jumping ahead and this was hard on me, it took me a long time to figure this out, because the B attitude that really caught my attention that day on the activity bus was the one in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God that was the one that got wow, that grabbed me I couldn't think of anything better in the world, the universe, to see God. I wanted to see God. So I thought to myself, well, what do you need to do to see God? Be pure in heart. Well, how, how hard can that be? So I, I started studying up. <laughs> you don't study up. Be pure in heart. I was clueless. But I was sincere. I wanted God. And God, you know, the Father knows that. Once we have that desire planted, and we start... He leads us. But the first lesson of the Beatitudes is this. The way up is down. The way up is down. And so, it's very counterintuitive. How many of you hiked down a trail before and felt like you are going the wrong direction? Dang, isn't that frustrating? Now, if you're like me, because I know better, I leave the trail and go the way I think it should go. How many of you have made that mistake? Well, I think, you know, listen, I'm going to do and you run into this sheer rock face that you can't climb or this deep ravine that you can't cross. And you then humbly at, you know, go back to the trail, right? <laughs> Isn't that how that works? That's what this is. And so God kept leading me back. This is the step, man. Follow the trail. And you go, but I want to go there. The way up is down. In fact, the further down you get, the higher up you go. It is really weird. I'm just saying it's God's path is not our path. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And uh, but God had to keep taking me back to step one, and the way He does that is pretty genius. He gets us to take step one by telling us to do things we can't do. He doesn't berate us and you can't do that. No, He simply says, "Okay, you know, I want you to." He wants us to make the path, so He gives us tasks that we cannot do. That we can feel it. And we think, that doesn't make sense. God wants us to see no, not, not. Because that's the step one. It has to be the opposite. I relate very much to a story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 19 about a young man who came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? That's, that's Matthew's recording of the question. Do you see the problem in the question? Do you see it? it you have to kind of think about it. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, those of you who know it, it ain't going to happen that way. But this young man was thinking there was something he could do. And uh, this guy thought he could be saved by doing good things. I was like that man for a long time. Only I, I wasn't trying to be saved. I knew salvation was by grace. But for a large part of my early Christian life, I thought my growth in Christ... My God experiences were dependent on that. me doing good things. I was trying to check the boxes. And, uh, and God was just like, okay, if you want to experience me, check this box. You know, I'm going to either be beaver. Okay, I'll do this one. And I was memorizing scripture, and I was praying, going to church, and I was evangelizing. And I was just, I mean, I was hitting it hard. and You know, dang. But, you know, there comes a point. You fail. You can't do it. You can't meet the standard that God calls us to on your own steam. And and, uh, eventually you crash and burn. And I I crashed and burned a few times. So Jesus looks at this young man and he says, okay, this is what you got to do. Obey the commands. So the young man goes, what commands? And and Jesus, the, the gist of what Jesus said was this, all of them. You know, it's not like you can pick and choose. Do six, seven, and eight and you're in. You know, it's like, it doesn't work that way. It's like all the commands. You can't skip them. Now, here's where it gets crazy. The young man says, I've done that. I've kept them all. I, that's just, that takes a lot of brass. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but it's like, geez Louise, really? And he goes, what more do I lack? And this is just amazing. Jesus comes back and says, well, if you want to be perfect, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Man, that's amazing. By the way, at, at that point, the young man walks away from Jesus and it's sad because he was very rich. Jesus put his finger on that point in that young man's life where he, he couldn't succeed and he failed. And I, I have always had hope, wish that he came back. You know, later maybe after Jesus died and the you know the gospel, oh, I get it now. I, I, God, Jesus didn't expect me to really do that. He wanted me to realize that apart from His resources, I cannot be righteous on my own. And the key phrase in what Jesus said is, "If you want to be perfect," and the Greek word it's the word "perfect," and that's that's a requirement. If you want to get to heaven on your own works, you have to be. Anybody got that down? For all of us here, that ship has sailed, right? It ain't happened. We've already messed up. And you see, you can't just have like right? Once you've messed up, you're done. And so, you know, that's kind of how it is. But perfection is the requirement. In fact, if you read on in Matthew chapter 5, the very end, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48. This is what he says Be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. Dang. Now, this is, just to give you insight into how kind of crazy I I was. I reasoned that if Jesus commanded it, it must be possible. Right? I mean, I was thinking, that's how I kind of I It took me a year or two to figure out, "Mm, it's not possible. But I was really kind of reasoning that, you know, reasoning that through. And, uh, you have to understand that Jesus does not give us this teaching expecting you or me to actually be perfect. He gave it to us so that we might face our spiritual poverty and powerlessness. So we might experience a different kind of holiness, a different kind of righteousness, a different kind of perfection that comes through grace and not by our own works. And that's why Matthew's preaching, writing this gospel to his Jewish comrades. Who believed in righteousness by the law. And these guys saying, Guys, you can't do it. You have to obey the law perfectly, you can't do it. And Jesus is trying to get us to understand there is no way to have a relationship with God doing it that way. And so, you know, it's a by grace. And that's what this whole Sermon on the Mount was pushed us to. And when we preach this, Michael Brad, we need to be careful, so people understand well some of these commands we can't do and we always have to come back to the grace of God and the empowerment of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to do this thing and uh, that's why blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven that's where it starts, that's where the magic begins to go up we must first go down but we and we can't move on by the way until we get this down but this is a hard lesson and we fight it we fight God almost the whole way I still fight him I still take things in my own hands. Sometimes I still think I can do it on my own. And God has to show me different. And uh, in fact, God gave me a little refresher lesson a couple weeks ago. Now, not a week ago, Christmas Eve. And I'll close this little story because it really illustrates how God works with us. He orchestrated a lesson for me to teach me again the need. Poor in spirit. And it was Christmas Eve I had to come back to the church I forgot something. No one was here and as I was leaving I I went to turn off the lights at the top of the stairs there by the sound booth and so I turned off the lights and it was dark and as I proceeded to walk down the steps in the dark I missed a step and down I went I mean not just kind of I, I, you know, I was about to face plant. Fortunately, I hit my knees. Bam. That slowed me down a little bit. There's a lot of momentum. And so I started going down a little further, and, and I was able to get my hands out. And, I, and that stopped me almost completely. But there was enough momentum. And this is what was so funny. Here I am, my hands, my knees, my, on my knees, on the floor, hands here, but the momentum is still strong enough to just slowly tilt me in a just slow motion, my head was headed toward the floor. And down it went, down it, bam. Just enough to leave a mark. Now you gotta appreciate it. So there I was, and you gotta appreciate the picture here. The preacher, in the sanctuary, on his knees, head to the ground. Dang, that's a perfect posture of prayer. But it took a fall to get me there. What's it take to get you there? And don't worry. God will pick you up every time. But slowly we learn. Man, I can't do this. And we become a habit of turning to God more often, more quickly. And then we begin to experience God more consistently. Amen? Let's all be standing for a closing word of prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you. You are so awesomely big yet loving. Why would you go through the effort of teaching us, of reaching us, of speaking to us? Man, I thank you that you've called us on this journey that's way beyond us because it's in that journey we have the fullest experience of you in life and we don't just travel along. We travel each other. We experience you through each other. And, and Father, we have so much to learn. I just thank you for the grace that's in Jesus, and I ask that you just help us together to be faithful to the path, to stay on the path, and to experience you more deeply so that we can reflect you more brightly. In Jesus' name we pray.